You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's story involving a member of the U.S. Coast Guard, and our first story here on the Hazard Ground. After all these years and all these episodes, our first story of solely somebody who spent their entire military career in the Coast Guard. So we're going to learn a lot together here. But first, a few of our normal announcements. Please give us a follow on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast as well. Please continue to leave us Apple reviews, five-star ratings as well. Wherever you get these podcasts, particularly on Apple, give us a five-star rating. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate all the great comments that we've gotten. And we've even got some comments from listeners overseas, Australia, uh, places abroad. I mean, we certainly know that this, this Hazard Ground community is worldwide. We, we appreciate all the love and support but those five-star reviews help us out a ton so please continue to leave them don't forget about our promotion with amazon as always go to our website hazardground.com you can click on the amazon button at the bottom of the home page or on the sponsors tab it'll redirect you to amazon you do all of your normal amazon shopping we get a percentage of what you guys spend and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show so we certainly appreciate all the love and support all right this week's guest folks um again spent 10 years in the u.s coast guard um ended it as a mk3 a machinist technician third class was the rank that it is uh and after 10 years he had multiple different we don't call it it's not deployments with the coast guard because they're not combat oriented but we're talking about different things between drug busts uh and different you know ventures out to sea life-saving uh of people on the water things of that nature so we're going to hear this entire story from our next guest jim morphew as he joins us here on the hazard ground podcast jim welcome thanks thank you so much for doing this with us and thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate this. I mean, listen, um, and full disclosure to the audience, guys, I'm smart, but I, I know very little about the Coast Guard. It's one of those things that a lot of us don't, right? Like, we, I know the Coast Guard gets a lot of guff, and we make fun of it, and, you know, it's not a, a military branch, per se, even though it is, but just because and it's actually the second oldest one behind the Army, for those who don't know. So the Coast Guard's been around second longest. It was there before the Navy and the Air Force and the Marine Corps and everything else, but... You know, we're going we're gonna to do this together, Jim. We're going to learn. You're going to teach our audience a lot about the Coast Guard. And again, because it's not combat-oriented, it's just a different mission set. Uh, no less dangerous, certainly no less, you know, um, for lack of a better term, I guess, exciting about the work that you guys do. But we're, we're going to learn it all together. So how and why does the, the Coast Guard g- career begin for you? Uh, uh, I was wasting my parents' money going to University of Texas, El Paso after we returned from Germany. My father was in the Army. I um, I saw a commercial at 1130 at night right before they used to turn off the TV and put the test pattern on and it said U.S. Coast Guard. And I saw a picture of a, a 44-foot motor lifeboat, which was Carson the Bar, which is a, a large sea uh, going out like one of the, the inland co- uh, Oregon coastlet inlets or something like that. What they are is they're a special vessel that will go run to the sea, and if it turns over, it will right itself and save the crew. Once wow. I saw that, I knew I had to ride one of those. Now, you also had had a family member who served in the Coast Guard, correct? I've got 
14 family members that served directly in the, it, oh, well, 14 members that served in the service and one family member that served in World War II with the Coast Guard. He was a Higgin boat driver that used to let the guys off on beaches. Okay. So when you join the Coast Guard, do you know exactly what you're getting into? Like, are you well aware of the mission and everything else other than being on a cool plane? Did you have any idea what you were getting into? Absolutely not. I, uh, I was, I was really thinking about taking the test for customs and border patrol. Uh, but then I knew I'd be stationed right there at Fort Bliss or right there in El Paso. And I was, I was still itching, wanting to travel. I've been traveling all my life. Spent two tours in Germany, graduated from high school in Germany, lived in the boys dormitory at high school. Uh, so I, you know, I've been around, been, I like to travel. You have to go off to boot camp, uh, obviously. Yes. Um, you know, uh, well, I, let me back up for a second before we go to boot camp. When you sure. met with the recruiter, what did they tell you about the Coast Guard? And I don't really remember much about that. <laughs> I remember going in, taking the test, him being happy, and uh, receiving a letter a couple of days later saying, hey, you're in the Coast Guard. Congratulations. I was one of 300 chosen out of that district that year. All right, so you get into the Coast Guard. Now, when you head off to boot camp, did you, I mean, was there a way to, to study about what you were walking into? Is it the same as all of the military boot camps? I don't even know. Well, it's structured the same. Okay. Uh, my boot camp was in Alameda, California, which at the time there was two boot camps, one in East Coast uh, up in Cape Major, New Jersey, and one on the West Coast out in Alameda. I was a West Coast. Po- west coast person so being in el paso and they sent me out to alameda california boot camp is probably just like about anybody else's boot camp you get off the bus you stand on the squares and they yell and scream at you for ever <laughs> is it do they just throw you in the water and say hey see if you can swim kind of deal well you know that's kind of funny that you say that yeah they once you get into the swimming phase they basically say hey get in the water if you don't know how to swim we're going to teach you but luckily for me, I'd been in swimming lessons since about the age of six and swim team and all that. So I was ready to go as far as the swimming went. All right. So when do you graduate from boot camp? Like month, year time frame? What, what, what are we talking here? Uh, that should be around April 78. All right. So 1978. So, I mean, we're not necessarily, yeah. I mean, and just, you know, on the periphery, we're not engaged in combat at this point in time. Oh, so, no. You know, no. And, and well, I, I, because one of the things I was curious about is when, when there are combat missions, how much the Coast Guard is either ancillary to it or providing some level of support and things of that nature. Uh, we, we can discuss a little bit more of that, you know, as, as we go along here. But um, sure. you get to your first duty station um, in uh, Station Grand Isle in Louisiana, correct? Yes, sir. I was told... Uh by the company commander when we got our orders that day he said do you like sun sand and beer and women i said i love them he said well there's sand sun and tree or woman behind every tree i got to grand isle louisiana and there's not a true one uh it's seven mile island by three quarters wide with a 24 man station now what is your actual job when you get to your first duty station Are are you a machinist tech at that point in time no, the Coast Guard's a little different. Uh, once you go into the Coast Guard, you're a non-rate, E2 or E3. You're going to have about two years of duty as a non-rate to learn all the ropes. 
to learn how to be a seaman, to learn how to be a junior engineer or, or whatever your job is. Uh, it's, it's learning the small boats, learning how to be a small boat crewman or on the big boats to be a big boat crewman. I got lucky and chose a small boat unit. Now, you talk about the, the learning the ropes, so to speak. I know that, like the, the Army has, you know, their advanced individual training, you know, or the School of yeah. Infantry for the Marine. Like, is there anything like that in the Coast Guard as well that, where, you, where you sort of get a specialty? Well, yeah. After, uh, it took me about a, a year and eight months before I went off to, I guess you would call MOS school, right. which would be Machinery Technician School, okay. which is in Yorktown, so Virginia. You almost, so you get to your unit first. You spend your year or two there, like you said, learning the ropes. Then they send you to your MOS producing school. Okay. There's a lot to learn. Uh, after boot camp, uh, instead of just sending you right into a, an A school, they need you to be able to know the fundamentals of boat handling and and being a you know a seaman or or an engineer or something like that. You have to learn how to tie. You have to learn how to you know. There's just so many multiple aspects of the Coast Guard or a service member's job when they're in the Coast Guard. There's certain things they have to learn before they ever go off to actual training so what happens at at grand isle um you know you experience your first mission of a person in the water is that my understanding my my first very first sar case was kind of a hazing thing but now when you say sar case explain what that is search and rescue search and rescue okay sar search and rescue rescue. okay i had a i had a young female that was in the water had been in the water for i don't know several weeks and she was pretty tore up and we got there. I, I was the one that entered the water and put her in Stokes litter and put her back up on the boat. Now it was quite, you know, it, I was 21, just turned 21, but that was a, quite a, a shock to me. And, and it worked. I, you know, I made it work. They taught me how to deal with it afterwards, which was go to the local bar and drink. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, you said she was out there for a while. How long was a while? How long did she survive out on the water? I don't think she survived. I think the tow had got her, the undertow had got her and, and dragged her down the beach for several miles. And usually if you get into a tow, an undertow, all you do is just relax your body, float, and it will return you to the beach. It's when you start fighting that undertow is when you'll wear yourself out and drown. Oh, so she was, she had already expired by the time. Yeah, she'd through. already expired. She'd been in the water for about two weeks. And, oh, gosh, no. wow. It's not pretty when they're in salt water like that. I was going to say, no wonder why you had to go to the bar and drink. Yeah, it was it was quite a quite a learning experience. Did, but did I, th- I learned quick. I was going to say, did you think that you had quick. made a mistake after that experience? Did you think that you that this no. wasn't for you? No. Then I realized that hey, this is something that's got to be done, and and I don't know. I just felt like returning her to her parents were were a good thing. Right. Okay. So, uh, and that, that was before you went to your, your machinist tech school that that happened? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I had several other cases that I think I've mentioned to you. One of them is the Flying mm-hmm. Fish too, which was a, a charter boat fishing boat out of Fushon, Louisiana, was sinking in the jetties. Uh, it was a real rough night. They had 22 people on board. So, we sent two 41 patrol boats there's 41 foot utility boats to go take our you know take care of the situation 
We managed to get at 2.30 in the morning, managed to get all 22 of those people up out of the water, the boat sank, but we got all of them. All right, so uh, we move on from there. Um, after okay. you finish your school, you then get transferred to another, is it another duty station or just another part of, of, uh, of, of Grand Isle? Sorry. Well, the funny part about that is while I was in Grand Isle, there was an 82-foot patrol boat which is a 10-man crew that's also stationed there. Her name is the Coast Guard Cutter Point Sal. I kept looking at that boat, and I wanted to be on that boat. Uh, it just they did more of the law enforcement and long-range search and rescue. So I transferred from the station to the, to the 82, to the Point Spencer, and got orders for A school once I was on the 82. Went to A school. A school finished up. And they decided they were going to send me right back to Grand Isle because it's such an isolated duty station. And I had been there before and seemed to like the place. So I went back to Station Grand Isle. I stayed at Station Grand Isle till right at 1980, I think it was. And the Point Spencer, which is an 82-footer that was up in New Orleans, had had a need for, for my my rate, my MOS, and they liked me on the, the law enforcement aspect, and they asked me if I'd be a part of the crew, so they sent me to New Orleans, and I spent probably the busiest of my time of my life in New Orleans for two years on the Point Spencer. Okay, so we, we before we get to Point Spencer, I want to back up a little bit, because you had a couple of major sure. incidents um, that sure. you went through. Um, you found some frozen dead shrimpers, which again, uh, oh. sounds awful. <laughs> That was pretty wild. This was on the Point Sal. So we had gotten a call uh, from a helicopter that was a petroleum helicopter. That's that's uh, the helos that run the guys out to the oil rigs. Mm-hmm. Well, he had noticed a shrimp boat on a couple of trips that it was doing circles, big circles out there. And it was still in the same position. And he noticed a man that was dead on deck, or he noticed what was a, a body that was on deck. So we we got out there as quickly as we could uh the boarding team which i was part of we jumped on the boat noticed the captain of the boat was halfway in and outside the captain or the cabin the the steering house and he was dead and noticed uh, a gentleman back on by the shrimp hole was dead well this vessel had a an ammonia making ice making machine and one of the one of the lanes feeding this machine ruptured and I guess it killed the whole crew because there was three other crew members that were in the bottom of the shrimp boat down in the ice hole that were frozen. So we had to figure out how to get them out of there. And that was not fun. Oh, so, so take me through, you see this thing on the water. Are, are, are they, forgive my naivete, <laughs> like in the movie, it's all right. in the movie, the guardian, like you're flying on a black Hawk and they lower you down and you get on the, the vessel and, you go in there and grab them and send them up on the, in the little crate. I mean, is that as as simple, I guess, as it is? That's the ocean. That's that's the aviation side of okay. it. I was on the boat side of it. So you go up uh, on, you pull up on a boat. Then there's four of us that go up on the boat. Okay. So that's a boarding team. Uh, boarding team's four members. Now, am I? Am yeah. I? Is it safe to assume like this is not like turbulent waters that you're going in, or is this like you know you're fighting storms and everything else on the boat along to go get to another boat? This was an easy one. It was flat okay. ass calm out there. It was a, a nice, beautiful day. But it was cold, obviously. Uh, 
I don't really think so. No, because oh, you said they were frozen or summertime. Well, yeah, they were in the ice hole. Okay, they were inside the ice hole where the shrimp were sold. So they had boof, all three of them had fallen down in that ice hole. It's like a big freezer. Wow. Okay. So they so managed to freeze in a few hours. You, you pull up next to it, then you hop on, you get them off, and you move on. That simple. Right. We okay. get on there, we get them off, we get them on, get them back to the base, and let the uh, uh, corners come in and take care of them. Is is there part of you that's looking at this going, how do these people end up like this? Like, what, what, why didn't they call for help? What goes wrong? Like, I mean, because I'm, I'm just kind of genuinely curious. I mean, I, obviously, there's an industry for shrimping that, you know, aside from, Forrest, aside from Forrest Gump handling it all, um, there is Absolutely. an industry <laughs> for shrimping that, um, you know, people do. But, I mean, did you think that this was a deadly operation, like, you, that you were going to be dealing with so much sort of, uh, death? You never know. You never know. It's one of those things that you just walk into. Uh, how do we get the call? Well, we got the call from a helicopter. And everybody that lives around a coastal city that has Coast Guard units know that Coast Guard are considered the coasties of the sea. We're the law enforcement search and rescue agency responsible mm-hmm. for all Laws and navigation within the, the ports of New Orleans or within the ports of the United States, continental United States. So they just automatically call us. That's like calling 911. All right. That's simple. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. that you guys are the police of the sea, so to speak. So yes, one of the other things that you know people may or may not know, that, I, that one thing I do know that the Coast Guard does is a lot of drug busts. Um, yes. You come across your first drug bust experience. My first drug bus was a was a small shrimp boat that was out of South America somewhere. We're not real sure where she came out of. And she had about 10 people on board. We came up across her in the middle of the night, and they were throwing the bales of weed off the, off the stern. Well, they didn't realize at the time all we had to do was just take one bale, and that was evidence. So we grabbed one bale. We waited for them to run out of fuel. We jumped on board the rest of the crew and brought them back. So that was a real nice, easy I got my first bust, and I got the bug bit me. Were you, su- bit me. were you surprised that there were drugs being dealt on the water? Well, I knew there were smugglers from the, right. the history, and I knew that the Coast Guard was real active in during Prohibition, during the, the ch- chasing the whiskey runners and the rum runners. So it was only natural for a Coast Guard guy to be out there chasing drug smugglers. All right, so you, make you, sense? <laughs> yeah, when you say you got bit by the bug, like, is this now the thing that you want to do the most is, is find bad guys trying to smuggle drugs? Like, is this the most fun thing you're doing? Search and rescue was my priority okay, because of lives. Right. Drug bust was, yeah, let's go get them. You know, that's our job. Let's go get them. <laughs> and, you know, they kind of trained us up like a bunch of chained up pit bulls. We were ready for whatever they had to do to do what we had to do um that bust was was real interesting and in, in, in formulating my career it, it really so? kind of got me started on what i wanted to really do how so and what, what what was it that you wanted to do well i wanted to continue with the search and rescue and the law enforcement so that's why i went ahead and took the uh once i got a chance to get on the point spencer the Point Spencer was considered the prize crew of the 8th District. The 8th District is Texas, Louisiana, 
Mississippi and just a little bit of Alabama. Uh, she handled the whole Gulf of Mexico. And anytime another 82 unit, 82 unit that was out of service for, uh, uh, for maintenance or anything like that, in the Gulf of Mexico, we wouldn't took her place. So we were underway a, a lot. There was no home time at all with that unit. For two years, I spent mostly out, out of New Orleans. Uh, she, uh, she was a fast boat. She was, uh, she was stationed in what we like to call sweet water, which was fresh water. So she didn't have any buildup on the hull. And she was a real good running boat. I really enjoyed that time on that boat. Had an excellent crew, uh, numerous SAR station or numerous SARS. Just, I think we'd probably need to go on some of the stuff that I had listed there on the big cases. Cause that, that unit was just, there were so many cases. I can't remember them all. Right. Um, before you go to I a guess, school, go ahead, go ahead. Before I went to a school. Yeah. Before you went to a school, which is the, the school we talked about before where you learn your your sort of uh, right. your MOS proficiency. Um, right. you, you end up, what you said was taking a dip. I mean, I assume that you end up in the water at some point, but this was not on no. purpose. Yeah, I'd forgotten, but I wrote you about that. Yeah, we <laughs> took a dip. The Chief MK and I were, were dewatering a offshore supply vessel, which was a 160-foot boat, and it decided to turtle. When we say it turtled, it capsized. Okay. We were on that boat. It was in the middle of the night. It was January. We were freezing. The old man on the boat, our CO, was a master chief, which was an E-9. And it's quite common to have an E-9 as a commanding officer of those boats. He had about 28 years of service, Vietnam vet. Uh, and he went absolutely bonkers. He didn't want his guys in the water. So he, he did everything he could to get us out of the water that night as fast as he did. And we were lucky not to... Not to go hyperthermic because it was quite cold that night. Um, got us back to the station and they sent us off to the hospital to get checked out and all that. We managed to lose the boat, but we gave it a heck of a shot. Did you think you were going to die? No, 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 no. I never Did worried you, about dying. Do you think you were going to freeze, freeze out on that water though? No, no. I I knew my I knew my my crew was right, right there. I mean, when you're with a when you're with a 10-man crew or even a four-man crew on a 41-footer, you know these guys like the back of your hand. It's a, You're a team. So you live together, you eat together, you sleep together. You know how that is, the brotherhood. No, 100%. I think, I think everybody listening certainly. Oh, absolutely. You guys understand the same thing. I saw yeah, it. I mean, there's, there's, there's no doubt about that. I just, yeah. you know, again um, – I, I I just have this irrational feel of being fear of being stuck in the water somewhere with nobody coming get me. I mean, even if you give me a raft, it's like you know, I don't want to end up like Tom Hanks in Castaway for crying out loud. It's just not not, yeah, not my deal. I understand that, and a lot of people do feel that way. I guess I was born a water baby. I just okay. love to swim. All right. Um, like we talked about the uh, the Coast Guard Carter Point Spencer, where you ended up next after you you finish a school and everything else. Um, you had a lot of different missions on this one, particularly oh. the Coast Guard missions all over the Gulf of Mexico. So oh, absolutely. What, what are these I, missions like? Give me some examples. We were in the yard, which is a maintenance period where the boat's out of the water for the first 30 days I was in there. Uh, and, and I got stationed on the boat at the same time a, a QM3, which is a quartermaster. He and I hit it off real well. We were best friends from day one. 
Both of us are big guys, six foot three, he's six foot four, 220, 225 pounds. He was a swimmer with uh, the 72 Munich Olympics. This guy was pretty, he was pretty sharp. We we're both the same age. We became fast friends. After we left the yard, about 30 days later, I think this was sometime in March or April of 1980, the Marial boat lift kicked off. Well, here we go. We're underway. We're down in Key West within 19 hours, and we're picking up people coming in from Cuba in some absolutely horrible, horrible mm -hmm. uh, vessels and weather. And, uh, man, it was just hard to describe. We had 91 people that we had to transfer boat one night onto our boat. It was six-foot seas. Eric and I were back on the railings. I was handing people to him or throwing people to him as hard as I could to try to get them across the railings without getting them between the boats. We had infants, we had children, we had 90 year old people. That was a long night. Yeah. We, uh, we continued with the operation for about six months. They'd let us go home for about two weeks to New Orleans to refit and refuel and then back to New Orleans or back to Key West. Jimmy Carter was a president at the time. We weren't funded very well. We very seldom had fuel money, but they made us work. Uh, they made it work for us. He kept changing his mind on you know, what he wanted to do, either stop them or let them come in, stop them or let them come in. Right. So we noticed that about two months or three months in, we started getting less children and women and started getting more males. Right. Uh, you know, 25 to 35, 40 year old males. Well, these males started coming in, they were hardcore looking. They had shaved heads, they had tattoos all over the place, and they weren't the nicest guys around. So we kind of got it figured out in the head and we armed up. We, uh, one of the first units that decided we better start carrying our own weapons instead of letting these guys just on our boat. Well, it turned out that Castro had started letting all the prisoners and all the uh, uh, mental health patients as a, the, the asylum people out. And that's when we really started getting kind of rough. We were pulling people in day in, day out. Uh, it was a nonstop 18-hour work days. You were lucky to get four hours sleep at that. And that I mean, was broken sleep. Did you? Did, how, how do you notify the government of what you're seeing? Does anybody do that? Well, we had an on-scene coordinator, which would have been okay. Coast Guard Cutter Dallas, which is at the time was the biggest of the media or the high endurance cutters that the Coast Guard had. She's 378 foot and she'll run anywhere on the globe. She usually carries a four striper, which we call a captain in the army, an 06. Mm -hmm. um, so he's he's in direct control with the district headquarters, which would have been seventh district. Seventh district is is in coordination with headquarters up in Washington, D.C. That's kind so of crazy to think that the, that was going on for as long as it was going on. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, it was in the news quite a bit, but as, as we see in, in a lot of our media coverage, it dies down and something else will break and be more enchanting to watch. I suppose they knew that, uh, that, that the people of the United States weren't real happy about this. And so they had to get it shut down sooner or later. Yeah. Okay. And by stopping the, by stopping the media coverage on it, that pretty much works. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Um, tell me the story about the Red Diamond. The Red Diamond was interesting. She had 731 people on board. So we got her and... Was it a cruise ship? Get what was it? No, no. It was... Actually, the Red Diamond was an old offshore supply boat itself. So okay. these are boats that have been used to, to supply oil rigs and stuff like that. So we don't know where the Red Diamond come from. She was probably just commandeered from somewhere and used in the Cuban boat lift. You have to remember a lot of these boats were brought in from people that, that owned them that were part of the, communi- commu- the Cuban community that lived in Miami. So a lot of these people were leaving Miami, going to Cuba, picking up people and coming back. When we found the Red Diamond, she was dead in the water with 700 souls on board, and we had to get her to port. Okay. So here we are. I think she was a little over 300 foot, maybe 250 foot. We put a tow line on her and towed her into port with an 82 footer, which was pretty exciting. That's not done too often. Uh, another one of our big toes out at sea was seven uh, personal watercraft or, or, or small watercraft, anything between, say, 30 foot and 20 foot. We had seven of them on tow line at one time. It was pretty funny to see. It was like a mother duck and all her ducklings behind us. Um, the Cuban the, the Cuban ops really, really brought a lot of man's inhumanity to man to me. I also have been to Cuba or Haiti, and that's that's one place I'll never go back to. Why? Oh, Haiti. Well, when I pulled into Port of Haiti, there was dead bodies all over, all over the the, the moorings area. And it stunk, and it was just there's no humanity there, and I don't think there is any today. From my experience, I'll, I'll never go back. Wow. Um, did you ever find out why there were dead bodies? I mean, was it just? Yeah, it was just their nature. Interesting. Haiti is completely like probably many other places in the world, completely uncivilized. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Um, And I've been to some pretty rough places. Yeah, I mean, look, it sounds like it already. Um, So uh, the next year of your career involves a lot of drugs, as you say, drugs and more drugs. Um, Drugs after drugs. We we hit, after the Cuban thing is, we, we hit the, we went back to New Orleans and hit the, hit the drug trade or hit the started to hit the drug trade pretty hard. Mm-hmm. We found out after our first big bus that, well, after a major bus that the DEA and them customs and them actually had airplanes up flying around, finding out where these people are loading up. And then they track them and they call us to go interdict them. We didn't have that option. Oh, we just got lucky if we got lucky. So it was kind of a neat process. Here we go. We get a, a flash message, and let's go get these guys. Well, the first one was the motor vessel Polaris. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get up alongside her, and she's not going to stop. And uh, so then we have to figure out how to stop this vessel. So we use all kinds of different ways to try to stop a vessel. We throw a line in the water to foul the, pro- uh, the props, which will stop a boat. We uh, use fire hoses to try to wet down the pilot house, try to get water in there. We do anything we can, really, just to get them to stop. Well, they wouldn't stop. 
uh, district was notified and district gave us permission, which was highly unusual. In fact, we were told we were the first unit since prohibition to use disabling fire, uh, which couldn't be true because we used a lot of disabling fire in, in Vietnam. Uh, but beside the point, we opened up. We we had a two brand new crew members on board. I had a the XO was on leave. My chief engineer was on leave, so we had a skeleton crew. We had to bring in a couple of extra new crew members. Uh, we put the cook on the fifty caliber, let him shoot it up. Uh, once we we made our point, I noticed that I was the lead boating officer at the time, and I noticed that we had 20 some odd people coming out the superstructure out the pilot house area carrying suitcases. And I said, what is going on here? I've never had this before. So I looked up the gap and he looked at me and he says, check it good. And I said, sure thing. So me and the prize crew, they, they, we jumped on board. We got on board, uh, got the prisoners all stacked up. My two shotgun men are back there, got them in the holding area. Uh, and Eric and I lurched uh, the QM3, and I had to clear the boat. So we went about clearing the boat, clearing the superstructure. Seeing all the bullet holes in this boat that a 50 caliber will make is just amazing. I've never seen a 50 work out like that. I've never seen the results of a 50 working out like that. Um, clearing a boat is, is just like clearing a room, like you guys had to do, I suppose. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any real training in it, so we kind of had to learn the way along the way. Um, kept eating my kept eating back in my mind. Why were these guys all in the storm with the suitcases? And then it popped in my head, I better get to the engine room. I went to the engine room. Eric and I had to crawl across 50-pound bales of weed to get to the engine room, <laughs> and there's water in the engine room. And I said, ah, here we go. So I noticed one of the sea strainers, which is a uh, 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 a way to cool diesel engines. They draw wall water in it, goes around a heat exchanger, and ships it back outside. So that'll keep the diesels cool. Well, they'd open up one of the sea strainers, which was the wall water in. It's a 12-inch pipe. Well, they weren't really thinking about it, I suppose, or they wanted us to save the boat. I'm not sure which, but they left everything there for me to put it back together. Eric and I quickly got it back together, got the water stopped and got the boat pumping out. That's when we went into the main hole. And that's when we discovered we had more weed than I'd ever seen in my life. Oh, wow. It ended up being in excess of, uh, I think it was 110 pounds, 110 tons. And that was solid gold Colombian marijuana. So we ended up with 23 prisoners and 23 or 110 tons that trip. The next trip was kind of a little strange, too. The next one was about a month later. Uh, it was a Saturday. We were in what they called Charlie, which would have been a maintenance period. The crew, again, is all scattered throughout. They're you know not really on board. Nobody's on board but the duty guy. And I happened to be the duty guy that day. I got the call from the old man. He said, get the crew together. We got to run. And I said, well, I'll get whoever I can get together. We got whoever we could get together on the crew, which made it about eight of us. And we got on down to the what they call the Mississippi Gulf Outlet, which is a straight ditch that runs from New Orleans proper into the Gulf of Mexico. 
and we sit up down there at the down there at the pass. When we set up, we usually sit up out in the bush or out in the, the swamp, hidden by a tree or something like that, using night scopes and radar to see who's coming in and out. Well, after I'd changed watch and I had gone off to bed, one of the new kids that wasn't real familiar with our our operations had let this book go by in the middle of the night. Next morning I get up and we get ready to go back to New Orleans, you know, ops is normal. Let's go back home. It's Sunday. We'll be home by, you know, lunchtime. Everything's cool. Let's get. So we're heading up the ditch. Eric and I've got the got the con. We've he's the OD and I'm the I'm the engineer of the watch. And we notice about a 235-foot freighter, an inland freighter sitting up on the right-hand side of the ditch. It's stuck. It's in the water. It's in it's it's a ground. Well, they've got 15, 16 little brown people standing on the back end of it showing a Norwegian flag. So I know something's not right with that. And we was about 100 yards away and I could smell the weed. So we jump it, we get on board it. I've got another 45 tons. So within a month, I had 155 tons. That's insane. I know it was absolutely insane. I guess the cartels decided then they were losing too much money. And then they're going to send their weed that away, and they shipped it all in. Operations shipped it over to the border side of Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. So we stopped the weed coming into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, at one point, you had a fire on board, which uh, sounds rather see, scary. Yeah, it was. It was that was kind of traumatizing. We, uh, as a prize crew of the Point Spencer, they decided, well, we're going to give you guys a brand new boat. It was a 110-foot surface effect ship that was on loan to us by the Navy. She was a fast boat. She was a, a catamaran hull, which means she had two, uh, two holes with a space in between. Well, the space in between had a forward skirt, or a rubber skirt, and a forward or a half skirt that went to, between the two sponsons. Am I making sense? Yes. You know what a catamaran is? I, I know what one I've been on one on a trip to Mexico, but you know, there you, that's go. A... there you go. I don't care if they're 12 foot or if they're 200 foot, okay. it's a catamaran hole. So this thing had 44 inch diameter fans run by two V8 Detroit diesels. This thing would lift up on a bubble of air and she would ride on top of the water. She was 25 knots and 20 foot seas. That's a ride. That's a roller coaster for everybody. Um, well, one night I was in the rack. It was I had just come off watch about an hour before. Our watches usually ran from it's a four hour watch, four on, eight off, or unless you had unless you had less crew or more crew. You had to adjust your watches. I had just hit the rack and the general alarm went off. And the engine room door was right next to my my birthing area. The first thing an engineer is gonna do when when something like that happens, he's gonna come out and he's gonna check the 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 metal door securing the engine room with the back of his palm of his hand or the back of his hand to make sure that's not where the heat's coming from. But I felt the heat. I knew we had problems. I got topside to my, my, my station to my general core station, which is number one fireman. So I, I got into my, um, OBA, which is oxygen breathing apparatus, an old school thing. Got the fire hose, and me and Lurch went into the engine room and had molten aluminum just melting on top of us. We don't have fire gear. 
Oh, we're down there in our uniforms, no hard hats or anything. I'm still in a pair of topsiders. But we got the fire out, and that's what mattered. Then we had to figure out how to get home. So we were about, I think, 20 miles off the Mexican coast. We got one main diesel started, and we started limping home. It was a three-day trip home. Uh, once we got her home, Bell Halters, the boat that built the, or the, the company that built the boat, they took the boat back under control. Rebuilt her in three weeks. We got some needed time off and then back underway. Uh, the Coast Guard Dorado was mainly a research and development, or if we wanted to buy a boat. And we used it on all platforms, all search and rescue, all law enforcement, anything that the Coast Guard wanted to try this boat on, we used it. So we spent an enormous amount of time underway away from family and friends. Let me ask you. Um... You've been now in the Coast Guard for uh, three years, a little over three years at this point in time. Right. I was coming you've up done, on my reenlistment at that time. I was going to say, you, you've done all this stuff, and you've seen some morbid things and everything else. I mean, what are you thinking big picture-wise? I mean, are you in love with it right now, or is this more than you bargained oh, for? Or man, I, I'll tell you right now, if they told me they needed me to come back, I'd be there in a minute. <laughs> If I could just handle the telephone for him, I'd be happy. Uh, no, I. Uh, there was a unit there at New Orleans called Captain of the Port, which is another completely different kind of uh, entity of the Coast Guard. It's a, a port security unit. They handle all security within the ports and uh, the coastlines of the United States. They handle pollution investigations, chemical spills, Drug bus, search and rescue, anything you can think of the Coast Guard does, they handle it. And I wanted to go off to a school called Marine Environmental Protection Petty Officers Course. And the only way to do that was get stationed on there. So when my enlistment time came up, the Coast Guard needed me. They were giving out big bonuses. and I My rating was actually the top bonus at the time and i took chance i said yeah i'll take that bonus but i want to go to captain of the port and i want to go to the school because i want to learn what it's like to be a pollution investigator and hazmat man they said no problem they sent me off to school well that four-year experience was more schools than i'd ever seen in my life i'd been to Texas A&M firefighting school, Chevron rig firefighting school, hazardous material schools from the EPA to Texas A&M to uh, Dillard University to all kinds of schools, explosive schools out in Concord, California, just all the time, education, education, while maintaining the job at the time. About my third year into that, oh, now I'm going to get to a, a, a fun story or what I thought was a fun story. I guess they decided I'd been underway and kind of wilded out a little bit. And they kind of needed to pulse me up because I was going to be dealing with the, the public and, and, and let's say um, members of, of, of um, industry. All will are all, all refinery presidents and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. I wasn't worried about all that. I wanted to get in to get to the meat of it, but they kind of gave me a little lack job. They said, look, we're going to put you with, uh, they put me with a captain. Uh, and I was his, like his, uh, I was his vice commander. So 1984 come in, they had the world's fair. 
and I was chosen to be the vice commander as an E4 of the World's Fair, Coast Guard unit, World's Fair. So with that, I had an office up at the World's Fair. I got to do all the scheduling for the Coast Guard events, which every night I had to have a patrol vessel on board. I had to have three patrols up there three times a day. But every night at 10 o'clock, I had to have a vessel up there for the fireworks show. So that was a lot of fun. I also got to be uh, the second man on the Coast Guard uh, Vice President Protection Unit uh, when Vice President George Bush Sr. came to town. So that was an experience. I got to work with all the different agencies, uh, so, uh, the special or the Secret Service and Navy SEALs and all that kind of stuff. That was quite eye-opening. That was a good little six-month tour. You also worked in the Hurricane Operations Center at one point. Well, see, now this is after I'd been there about three years, they put me in the Operations Center. I I'd pretty much gone through all the departments that I needed to go through and got trained up on all the different aspects of captain of the port and I was a good student at it so they decided well let's let's move him into the operations center we're going to try something different we're going to merge the search and rescue side and the port security side together so we're going to have a SAR man in there we're going to have port security which I represented the port security side we operated you know a bank of telephones had a radio man a radio room we had an OD which was an officer which is unusual on the Coast Guard because we didn't really get, and this is a very big unit. We didn't see very many officers. Right. And this is a large unit. So yeah, we had our share of officers. So uh, that was hurricane one. I had had a lot of experience in the operations center by then and never knew what was going to expect, what was going to happen in that 12 hour uh, shift. We were 12 hours on 12 hours off two days on, two days off of sliding weekends. You, you know, obviously it was 12 a.m. to 12 midnight. And on your next time, you was 12 midnight to 12 a.m. Well, I'd come in that day. It was 12 a.m. Hurricane Wands heading for New Orleans. I have to worry about my family. I've got a family out in St. Bernard Parish, Chalmette, which is a, a, a little bedroom community of New Orleans. Her family all lives there. So I'm worried about them, and I start the phone start ringing. I think I logged over 400 phone calls that day, uh, from crazy to crazier to crazier. I had 20 Filipinos, Filipino crew members in the water down at the mouth of the pass, which is uh, where the Mississippi River enters the Gulf of Mexico. I had all spills everywhere. My search and rescue guy had, had all kinds of searches going on at the same time, which I'm having to help him with, and he's having to help me do my stuff. We were busy. Uh, then we had a Russian. Decided he was not going to be a Russian anymore. He wanted to be an American and jumped off the damn boat oh. in the middle of the river. And, well, the Border Patrol actually found the guy walking down the levee. And that agent decided, well, he's not coming here. We're going to put him back on board. Well, you don't do that. Not with a Russian national. If a Russian national decides he wants amnesty, you're going to give it to him no matter what. Especially if he jumps off a cargo boat in the middle of the Mississippi River. So that brought the State Department in. State Department wanted us to get ready to board. And I said, well, we don't have the, 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 we don't have the way of boarding that boat. 
we didn't have the crews that would be able to do it safely. I said, you're going to have to think of some other way. He said, okay, I'll get back to you. I notified the OD, and the OD was too busy, really worried about the State Department at the time. I was hoping the State Department would forget us and it'd all be over with because I had people in the water. I had to get them out of the water. Uh, But it didn't happen. Reagan was president, and Reagan wanted everybody he could get. So they sent in some special ops guys. We never saw them. Uh, And well, Let's just say he was rescued. Okay. Um, after this, you moved to Point Roberts, uh, Mayport, Florida. Um, ah, the Point Roberts. This was my last unit. And, right. And I hate to say probably sadly my worst. Well, I, I mean, the interesting thing that stuck out to me about this duty station for you um, is the Challenger case, which, uh, again, referred ah. to the, the Space Shuttle Challenger I mean, look, it's one of the most seminal moments of my entire childhood, right? I mean, like literally January 28th, 1986, I remember it vividly. They had wheeled the TVs into our classroom and we stopped. We were watching the space shuttle take off. There was a teacher on board. Uh, And by the way, there's a great side note. There's a great Netflix documentary on what went wrong with the Challenger and how it was completely botched by NASA uh, and every scientist along the way. Uh, it, was right. a shut, it was a launch that should have never happened, but you know, there's a lot of PR PR things that were said that yep. should never have been said and yep. done. Yeah, um, uh, I was sitting in the ops room. I was, was going to say, so what, what's your role here? Well, I was sitting in the ops room at Captain Report in New Orleans. I'd already had my orders to the Point Roberts and was due to report on board Monday. Well, this on this was on the 28th. This thing happened. And I saw the boat. I saw the Point Spencer coming in with debris on her into the Cape on the news. And one of the guys said, hey, there's your next unit. And I popped up and I looked at her and she was, she, you could tell she'd been underway for quite a bit. She was dirty. She just looked disheveled. And, you know, when I just said that it was probably the, the worst unit I was on, no, it just needed some help. And I think that's one reason, being that I had already been on two 82-footers, that they decided that I'd probably be a good crew member and could help the boat get back into shape. So they sent me. Uh, Once I got on board, the crew was a little different than what I was used to. Uh, They were dealing with Challenger uh, mainly. They didn't do too many law enforcement or search and rescue. They mainly dealt with whenever the Challenger needed security. They were the ones that were up and running on it. Um, as far as you mean, as far as when you say need security, are you talking about the, the, them trying to recover pieces of the shuttle in the Atlantic? Well, their overall job was was one of the primary missions was to provide security for all shuttle operations. So anytime a shuttle got it got launched, then they were there in case something like when the Challenger blew up, if there was any case of any hope of search and rescue that would be on scene. So with that being said, yeah, we did run some search and rescue cases. Uh, I spent, I think, I think we spent about six weeks out there on the Challenger until it died out of the news. We had a lot of rough weather, a lot of crazy calls. We had chicken bones on the beach one time and, you know, God bless Joe Civilian, but he thought there was people bones and I had a lot of small boat, six foot seas. Our little small boat was nothing but 14 foot long, a little small bitty thing and had to put it on the beach and go find these chicken bones and, you know, put them in a plastic bag and bring them back to the boat and tell the people that found them, no, you did a good job. Thank you. 
for America and that kind of stuff. But I realized there was this bleached up chicken bone somebody had a picnic on the beach with. So yeah, we deal with some crazy stuff out there. Um, also, you had your last search and rescue mission at this assignment, right? Well, I was having problems. I uh, Meaning what? I was, well, PTSD problems. Okay. I didn't realize at the time. Nobody talked about PTSD. Sure. I mean, you heard snippets about it, but it was way before. This was 19, what was it, 1988. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, a rough period. Uh, we get underway. We got this call. I got to go back to the boat a little bit. The boat hadn't been in the yard in a long time. She was falling apart. And as an engineer, that really stressed me out. Uh, They wouldn't give us time to put the boat in the yard. We had to be underway too much. So that was just, Coast Guard didn't have the money, I suppose. And we were building new 87-foot Coast Guard patrol boats to take their place at the time, 110-foot. So we got this call. It was off the off the shore like Carolinas and it was a blowboat when I say a blowboat Coasties will understand what I'm saying blowboat is a sailboat sailboats are the disdain of the Coast Guard they're the hardest things to tow especially when you're in rough seas so we're running extremely extremely rough seas at night the largest I'd ever seen and I'd been in 40 45 foot seas that beforehand so we're estimating 60-foot seas. This boat's about 55-foot. She had five POP, five members on board, and we had to hook tow to it because she was dead in the water. She was DIW. When we finally got, it's like watching a ballet crew out there with our crew members out there trying to get the line over to that other boat and that kind of seas. We finally got her hooked up. We had to hook it up around the mast of the boat center of the boat to be able to get her to pull we got her in uh we got some time off we took crew rest take 24 hours before we headed back home port and i had my first sleepwalking experience well i knew you know i'd I'd been having nightmares and stuff like that and i knew something went right so we got back and i i told the captain i said you know, Skipper, I got problems. I don't know what it is. He said, okay, we'll, we'll get you over to the Navy base for some Mayport, Florida. Coasties and Navy people did not get along. <laughs> the Marines and the Coast Guard, we love each other. I miss you about the most, I got to tell you one important one about the motor vessel, Wilson Harbor, which was during the Cuban operation. We had a call the motor vessel Wilson Harbor sinking and has a POB on board. We get there, and it's eight Marines. Don't ask me how they got this boat. It's a 38-foot Hatteras, you know, a $2 million yacht. And these guys have never been on a boat in their lives. You ever seen crabs trying to get out of a crab basket? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what those eight Marines were trying to do, my crew. And I wasn't having it. I got on board. I told them to chill out the Addies. We're going to do this right. We're going to do it the Coast Guard way. And we got them on board. Those guys were funny. They were really glad we showed up that night. But back, let's go back to Mayport. Uh, back, They sent me to a Navy doctor, to a Navy psychiatrist, which didn't speak English very well. He was Filipino. I don't speak Filipino very well. 
Well, the next thing I know, I got separation orders for being a sleepwalker. I said, huh, really? Well, that made me mad. I um I got called from district legal and they said, look, we can we can fight this and you know we can probably go to medical with it. And I said, no. I said, y'all done made me mad now. I said, do what you gotta do. And I went back to Mayport. Mayport put me on the beach there at the station and um I waited for my time out. Uh, about six weeks later I got orders to go ahead and get out. I got out. Uh I was I was miserable. I, I just I felt like I failed. I didn't understand. My wife couldn't understand. My my in-laws couldn't understand. Uh, I started drinking. And as you see the Coors Light behind me, that's just a memento. I started drinking. I drank too heavily. I uh, it, it just got too big. Well, I ended up getting divorced. I lost my family. I decided... I'm going to see how the other side of the law lives. Don't ask me why. I was crazy at the time, drinking too much. And I just went and decided to be homeless, kind of, and do whatever I had to do uh, to make men's, you know, to make money, uh, to just work as a shrimp, shrimper, or digging oysters, you know, doing the whole, I guess, Forrest Gump thing, actually. I, um, I got really bad off and, and, my father and them had retired from the army and he was teaching the Patriot missile system up there at Fort Bliss. And after that, they moved back to Arkansas, their home state. My father come down and got me because he knew I was in bad shape. He and my uncle, one of my great uncles, uh, army vet himself. They took me to the VA. The VA treated me for alcoholism. And I got out. Uh, the PTSD was never mentioned. I just figured, okay, I'll be okay. Well, that didn't solve my problems. I continued to drink, and I moved back to New Orleans because I was ashamed. I couldn't bring that to my parents. Went back to New Orleans hoping to get some more help and decided to go back to the VA and ask for more help. They again put me in another alcohol rehab, but I ran across a psych who talked to me and interviewed me, and it wasn't 30 days later I started getting disability payments, which at the time were, I think, 40 percent wow so that helped out money wise a little ways then i had to learn the va system and had to go through i went through two uh inpatient ptsd programs up in north little rock arkansas which at the time if anybody out there needs some help with ptsd go to north little rock there's a doctor named kimball he'll save your life i guarantee it he'll teach you how to what you got to do to make yourself straight and narrow or make yourself worthy again. I guess right. you want to say I stopped drinking. I moved in a Good. little small place I was on a, on a, uh, a beautiful uh, uh, federal park called Greer's Ferry, Arkansas. And I live out in the woods. It's me and my two dogs. I just have a good time. What it's is kind of isolated? No, listen. I mean, uh, yeah. Of all the stories you told, and they're, they're incredible to hear. I mean, I'm just you know, I was, I was generally unaware of a lot of this stuff. Um, but you know, when you, in reference to your PTSD, are there ones that stick out more than others? Is this like a general thing? I mean, where where are you now with all that you went through? Now, you know, I'm 66 years old. 
and it's been a lot of years, but I was sitting in a chair just about four days ago and something come across the TV. It, it, it was involved a young, young girl. She was on the nose and she had been found dead. And all of a sudden, I saw the girl, the first dude, the first star station. Um, I saw the first girl I picked up. And it was like her head was right there. I saw her like it was that day. I smelled that day. It brought every memory I had of that day right to me, right then and there. And I had to shake myself out of it. So it's still today. I still have to take uh, a medication to help me sleep at night. Nothing that I, I won't take anything that's 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 uh, addictive. Right. I take uh, what they call trazodone, which is a non-addictive sedative, and that makes me sleep at night. So I get good six hours sleep every night, and that makes a big difference. That and being sober sure does help. Yeah. I'd like to go to one little small story about the VA. Go ahead. You hear a lot of people gripe and bitch and moan about the VA. The VA actually saved my life twice. And yes, you do might have to fight once in a while. You might have to get angry once in a while, but the majority of those men and women that work at the VA are also veterans. That we all need to learn and live with. These guys have been there where you've been. They do, they do still help and they help you. Well, I learned in 2015 that I had lung cancer. And the doctor was a doctor from UMAS, which is a teaching hospital associated with the Little Rock VA. He was the best in the state. He came in and says, I was weighing 277 pounds. He said, you're big. I'm kind of scared. I don't think this is going to work. I said, we're going to try it. I'm a survivor. Let's do it. So they cut me open. Uh, I spent 26 days in intensive care. And I've been cancer-free since. Wow. It's seven years now. That's amazing. Yeah, seven years now, and I still get up and walk around and, and do what I want to do. No, that's a great smile. I love it. That, that's yeah, it just, yeah, it just makes me happy. I've lived a charmed, beautiful, wonderful life. I'd like to go back to my Army childhood in a moment if I could. My father spent 26 years in the Army. He retired as a warrant officer with the Hawk missile system, so I got to travel. I spent seven years in Germany. Like I said, started high or started kindergarten during the Cuban Missile Crisis on the East German border, and then finished high school at the Fulda Gap on the East German border. So that was quite interesting. What Living is in the, the high school dormitory, going to school right. on Sunday afternoon and coming home on Friday evening was also interesting. We had 86 kids there, males and females, and from all over Europe, activities Europe. Russia, Norway, mm -hmm. yeah. anywhere you could think of, these kids were there. We all were one big happy family. It's still a key day, keep together. We still talk to each other after all these years. What is the most misunderstood thing about the Coast Guard, in your opinion? Well, I always, people always say it's not a military service. And, you know, it's not. It, 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 it is, but it's not. It's structured like a military service. I think that's for pay grades and such right. because I was an E4 doing an 06 job. So, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you say, yeah, it's in the military. Many a times an E4 in the Coast Guard, you might say E4 mafia, but many times an E4 in the Coast Guard got a $3 million boat and a two man crew. And he's responsible for that boat, that crew and the lives that he's saving. 
that's a big responsibility for sure. me for. Yeah, uh, the Coast Guard is, when I was at the time, I was part of the Department of Transportation. Now it's under the headlines of the Department of Homeland Security. If we go to war, then it's Department of Navy. Now, we've been in the Iraqi war for, what, 20 some odd years now. And the Coast Guard does have a contingent there. They do boardings. They do smuggling activities. They do protection services. They do quite a bit of work. Uh, we're called the uniform of the of the services, and that's the reason because you don't see us very often. Anytime I went on to an uh, Air Force or Army or Navy base or Marine base even in uniform, everybody just kind of gawked at you and said, who are you? What do you do? <laughs> that's kind of funny. Um, we're what coasties. You, yeah. What, what was the I best? In, Go ahead. When I went in, there was 36,000 active duty Coast Guard people. Today, there's 45,000 active duty Coast Guard people, which is smaller than the New York Police Department. That's insane. Uh, that is Isn't a frame it? of reference that I was not even prepared to hear. Um, Absolutely. What, what is your What was your favorite part about the like your favorite mission set, I guess, or your favorite part about the Coast Guard? Was it the search and rescue stuff? Was it the drug bust, or was it something different? <sighs> most gratifying was the search and rescue. There's nothing like seeing a human that you reach into and you pull him out of the water because he's been in the water for so long and he thinks he's going to die that whole time he's in that water. But when I reach my hand out and Eric reaches his hand out, we hoist that man or that woman or that child onto our boat and tell them you're safe. We're going home. That right there, their eyes tell you everything. The funnest part had to be the boardings, had to be the LE stuff, had to be chasing the dope runners, had to be uh, the the operations that I got involved with the port security unit there in New Orleans, because that was a lot of, we worked with a lot of agencies, did a lot of crazy stuff, did a lot of surveillance, went, you know, searched a lot of docks, searched a lot of wars, worked, like I said, with a lot of different police agencies. It was quite interesting work but not as rewarding as the search and rescue. The search and rescue makes you feel good. If you, if you bump into an 18 year old kid who tells you, Hey, I'm ah. thinking about going into the service. Uh, <laughs> what would your pitch to him be to, to, to sign up for the coast guard? I am a active duty coast guard recruiter. How's that? Oh, <laughs> I'm not wow. getting paid for it. I'm not getting paid for it. If you can pass the test, go do it. Absolutely. If you want to be, in the action, 24 hours a day, 365 days a week or a year, for your whole 20 years, join the Coast Guard. All there is to it, bottom line. I saw action from the day I went in or the day I graduated from boot camp to the day I got out. There was no breaks in between other than the World's Fair for six months. It's insane. So yeah. it's like one giant deployment. Yeah, I mean that's that's what it sounds yeah. like. I, I you know again it's it, it it's is a, absolutely it's an existence that I was you know thoroughly unaware of um, to the level that you guys well had here's to do another this stuff. might help you here's another might help you think of your you're from Long Island think about your your fire departments mm -hmm. think about the crew that's on the fire department you have one crew on and they're on for two days and then they're off for two days you have another crew come in we work the same way yeah same way. I, listen, I, I thank you so much. Like, honestly, like, I, yeah. I, I've learned a lot. I feel I, I, I have a much greater appreciation for the Coast Guard than I did an hour ago 
when we started talking and understanding this whole thing. And, uh, you know, for the audience, full disclosure, you know, thank you for reaching out to us to tell your story. We always thank love you. it and when guests do that. And we, I certainly appreciate you doing it. I mean, again, I, I and I'll peel back the curtains for the audience. Like, I had to call Jim ahead of time. Like, Jim, I don't know what you're going to tell me. Like, I have no idea what the Coast Guard does. So let's talk a little bit so I can understand what we're talking about here. But, I, I again, I I hope the audience loved it. I know I did. I, I, I'm certainly smarter now than I was before. And, and uh, it's just it's been great talking to you. Mark, I want to thank you for your service. And uh, you guys that gone off to the sandbox, y'all are great. Fantastic. Some of the things you've dealt with was just astronomical and I'm with you brother anytime you need some help or anything like that holler we'll help you out there's a lot of us old guys around that can help no, uh, again, thank you the Coast Guard was established in 1790 mm-hmm. so we are the oldest seagoing service in the United States that is correct uh, second branch yep. of the military that was established right after the army so absolutely uh, it's, uh, we, we are side by side well look again it's been great getting to talk to you thank you so much uh, for sharing your story with us. I hope we get some people who say, I want to go to the Coast Guard now, right? We'll, 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 we'll get that too. number bigger than the New York, New York City Police Force sooner rather than later. <laughs> yeah, you better study up. You better learn what you got to learn to get into the Coast Guard because the test's not that easy, but it's it's a good way to do your life. It's well, a Congratulations on, on beating cancer. Congratulations on remaining Thank sober. You, These are great things for you. Wish you nothing but continued yes. success, continued health. And certainly, Jim Morphew, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you much, Mark. Have a good day. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.